0: Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hey everyone, we're putting on an event at the Hot Dog Cinema in Toronto tonight. Uh, a live shadow cast performance that we're calling the Rocky Horror Podcast Show, in which Jesse, taking the role of Dr. Frankenfurter, will take audiences on a time warp back to our company's founding when Uptake Canadians were first invited inside the castle of Central Delights that is Canada land. No, 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 not not really. The live show we're doing tonight to open the Hot Docs Podcast Festival is actually Canada Land's 10th birthday celebration, and the most viscerally uncomfortable thing about it will probably just be uh, Jesse taking the stage to field probing questions from Jen Wong. Uh, Supporters can get tickets at half price, which is one reason to become a paying supporter. Discounts on merchandise and not having to hear my often ferociously chipper ad reads is another. Also, there are supporter-exclusive bonus episodes, including a whole slew of new feature interviews with Canadian A-listers, including one that's like pretty much a solid 36 minutes of Margaret Atwood's discursive mischief. You also get to feel like you're in an exclusive club via access to each episode of Common's new cult season a week ahead of the general public, which is a fitting case of medium as message. But more than that, you should support Candidland because You can. Not all of my colleagues are necessarily on board with this metaphor, but I think of Candleland like an alt-weekly. Not Candleland the show, necessarily, but Candleland the network. Each week, across all of our series, the range of things that we cover and the ways that we cover them reminds me of what you used to find in an Uh, alt-weekly. I know we don't have concert listings or sex ads, not even for supporters, but we try to bring you a mix of stories that you wouldn't otherwise hear and new perspectives on the stories with which you're already familiar. And when appropriate, which we think is most of the time, to... Do that with humor and irreverence, or at least a cocked eyebrow. Chances are that unless you live in Vancouver or Saskatchewan, all weeklies are no longer a thing where you live. But I really think that the demand is still there. Well, maybe not for like printed concert listings and sex ads, but for current affairs covered with intelligence and snark, with more context and insight than you typically find accommodated in a daily news environment, and but also more immediacy and urgency than you'd find in like a monthly compendium of long reads. Not that we have many big magazines left either. All weeklies basically had one source of revenue, ads, display ads, classified ads, and adult classified ads. And when those markets dried up, so too did the papers. There was very little opportunity for people who loved and cherished those institutions to step in to support them beyond just picking them up every week. But, you know, Candleland, you can support beyond just listening to us, though we obviously do appreciate that. Uh, you can directly contribute to building a sustainable base that can help see us through whatever might happen in the advertising world or the global economy. You have an opportunity to pay for the thing you like, the thing that you want to stick around and to do so for as long as you want it to stick around. And it'd really suck if we'd learned nothing from the last 15 years of media and only started pleading with you to help us when we're already on the verge of collapse. That that would not be a long term solution. But this, what we're doing right now with our annual crowdfunding campaign, hopefully is a kind of long-term solution. And it's the best we've got, at least until we figure out how to monetize Jesse's creepy castle of sensual delights. Head to Candleland.com slash join. Pesant Matar, Toronto-based journalist and producer, a recent Asper fellow in media at Western University and Nieman fellow at Harvard... And the National Magazine award-winning author of a 2020 Walrus essay that became such an instant classic that it was among the recommended readings in Canada Land's own equity, diversity and inclusion training last year. Welcome to Shortcuts.
0: Thank you for having me. And that's really cool about it being part of your training. I I didn't know that. So today
1: on the show, uh, the foreseeable and depressing escalation of the conflict in Gaza and Israel and how the parameters of discussion around it are enforced. Also, the foreseeable and depressing response from the RCMP to the Narwhal's lawsuit against it, and how the parameters of coverage of land defense actions are enforced. This is Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by J.D. Lejeune, Dorothy Robertson, Hayden Slight, Darcy Phipps, David Heavner, Matt Chang and Chris Ketchison. And because it's crowdfunding season, he asked prominent Canadians if they think that Canada is better or worse off because of Candleland. Here's what former CBC Ottawa anchor and current Carlton Journal's improv, Adrian Harewood, had to say.
2: Canada is definitely better off because of Canada land for two reasons. Because Canada land is fearless and because Candleland is fresh. And when I say fearless, I love the fact that Canada land is unafraid of challenging power. It's unafraid of challenging powerful institutions, powerful organizations, powerful individuals. It's not afraid of challenging orthodoxy. Candleland is also fresh. I love the fact that it is original. Uh, the perspective that one finds on Candleland is rarely found in other spaces. Uh, Candleland always has an interesting way of framing stories. It has an interesting way of even selecting the stories. It always surprises. Candleland never disappoints.
1: Just a note to listeners, this episode will involve discussion of atrocities of war, particularly those concerning infants.
2: Tonight, trapped in Gaza as the crisis deepens and Israel warns of a long war ahead. Tonight, a deepening crisis in Gaza. The latest developments in Gaza, this bombing at a hospital with a, allegedly 500 people killed.
0: The scene at the Al-Akhli Arab Hospital after the missile strike was utterly chaotic. And awful. So early reports
2: of uh, breaking news just coming in that they're, according to Pal- the Palestinian authority, that an Israeli airstrike hit a hospital in northern Gaza.
0: I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not not you.
1: That was President Biden speaking to Netanyahu. It's been a week and a half since Hamas launched a large-scale attack on Israel, killing more than 1,400 people, and the situation has not improved. Israel has responded, as they foreseeably would, by launching airstrike after airstrike on Gaza in what is officially a bid to wipe out Hamas, but which, in practice, has catastrophic consequences for the whole Gaza population. As of Tuesday afternoon, it was believed that more than 3,000 Palestinians had been killed as part of Israel's retaliation, and then that toll shot up several more hundred by the evening when... Something blew up the Al Ali hospital. In the meantime, a ground invasion of Gaza appears imminent and may have already commenced by the time you hear this on Thursday. U.S. President Joe Biden is in Israel on Wednesday, the day we're recording this, in an effort to do something that might keep the situation from, well, not from escalating necessarily, but from escalating to quite the same extent that it threatens to. I mean, if it doesn't expand into a larger regional war, that will probably be seen as a win, But back to the hospital. Hamas blamed an Israeli airstrike. Soon after, Israel claimed it was, in fact, a misfired rocket from a group that's allied with Hamas. And this is one of those awful fog of war situations in which you, the listener, hearing this on Thursday, will likely have access to more information and evidence with which to judge the relative likelihoods of those explanations. How are you trying to weigh these conflicting everything right now?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, in terms of the strike against the Al-Ahli hospital, which I should add, mm. had, this was one of the few safe places for Palestinian people to be, mm-hmm. including children. Israel has been targeting the Red Crescent. They've been targeting ambulances. Fog of war is real. I want to acknowledge that. And the, the people on the ground right now are facing the very difficult task of verifying information in very hostile circumstances with very conflicting evidence. But MSNBC is one of the channels and broadcasters that mm-hmm. have said, Israel, in the aftermath of events like this, has a history of lying about mm-hmm. their role in it.
1: That there are instances in the past where the Israeli military has said things in the immediate aftermath of an incident that have turned out not to be true in the long run.
0: And one very concrete example, which I think is very relevant to our conversation today about journalism's Mm -hmm. role in this, 18 months ago, an Al Jazeera reporter named Shirin Abu was killed in the West Bank. She was shot by an Israeli sniper. Mm -hmm. At the time, uh, she was reporting on an attack on the Janine refugee camp. At the time of her killing... Israel said that the gunfire that killed her came from Palestinian gunmen, kind of confusing mm-hmm. people about where the blame lies, only later to say, to own up to it, to say they're sorry that it was in fact their sniper. Um, but nobody has been prosecuted or held accountable for that death. So, to your question, fog of war is real, but there is also precedent. But mm-hmm. at its core, and I think something that is so important here is that journalism is not stenography. Journalism is a discipline of verification. And I recognize it's hard to do that in real time, in wartime. Mm-hmm. But it's been one of the biggest disappointments, is the lack of verification and care that has gone into the reports that have gone out on this. And I think that carelessness has helped facilitate, is part of, you know, I know it's it's complex, and there's many factors, but mm-hmm. it's part of the reason why we are seeing what we are seeing today.
1: I mean, one thing I've been struck by looking at, I mean, for example, it's the, the statement that was put out by Naftali Bennett, who was then the Israeli prime minister, in about the killing of Srinabu Akhla, specifically on what was then called Twitter. According to the information we have gathered, it appears likely that armed Palestinians who were firing indiscriminately at the time were responsible for the unfortunate death of the journalist. And what it reminds me of and what a lot of the... Initial statements from Israel remind me of is frankly the initial statements from a lot of different kinds of state forces around the world, including police forces, when something has happened that, if what first appears to have happened has in fact happened, that would look really, really bad. And so, you know, there is a statement downplaying culpability and trying to shift the blame. Basically, any I would say that any statement from an armed force of any kind anywhere that attempts to shift blame or to downplay its own culpability in a situation should be at the very least taken with a grain of salt and critically received. And what often happens, often, you know, the story as more evidence emerges there will be gradual concessions and israel did you know not that long after admit that there was a high possibility that one of their soldiers in fact shot her although you know there weren't any real consequences for that and various independent investigations later basically confirm that. Even just uh, just this past Monday, the UN had a report uh, on that, um, that they concluded on reasonable grounds that the Israeli security forces used lethal force without justification under international human rights law and intentionally or recklessly violated the right to life of Shireen Abu Akhla. So they're saying, yeah, it was them, but the question, they, they're not making a determination about whether it was intentional or just recklessly indifferent. But I mean, even more recently, of course, like, you know the terms of the fog of war stuff on last week's shortcuts, which uh, was hosted by Jesse with Emily Nicola, who hosts her day tour show. There was a discussion of beheaded babies, think they ended up in the place where, like, well, there weren't forty beheaded babies, but some babies were beheaded, and and that's still really bad. And we won't know, but I mean, you know, by the time the episode aired on Thursday, I think it had been pretty much it had become very evident that there was no evidence that any babies had been beheaded. Though at the same time, it also raised the question of whether it's possible or helpful to sort different methods of killing babies into a moral hierarchy. Like, if babies die along with many other people when a building they're in collapses around them, is that less heinous?
0: Yeah, I mean, a few things. I mean, it's been, you know, the Reuters—there's uh, a Reuters journalist, Isam Abdullah, mm-hmm. who was killed. And I'm hesitating, as I say, by Israel. The official statement, even from Reuters, says— in a strike from the direction of Israel. Mm. Even in the—it was very difficult to see, even a, in the official picture of his own mother laying him to rest, the caption of the mother of Islam Abdullah lays him to rest after he was killed by striking from the direction of Israel. And this obfuscation, mm. the lack of clarity of language, and the lack of responsibility— That we are assigning, I think, is doing a disservice. And I am really struck by the lack of protection that journalists who are there to bear witness to cover this have. Reuters has repeatedly asked the IDF for assurances that if they send their journalists in there, that they will be safe. The IDF does not respond. And to your question about armed forces, military forces, police forces— It is alarming, and I think this is part of a pattern, what's happening with the IDF and and the Israeli military, is part of a larger pattern of a lack of skepticism and a lack of verification when they put out statements saying either distancing themselves from Mm -hmm. culpability. I mean, we all know by now George Floyd's murder, Mm -hmm. which we now know to be a murder. You know, the initial police statement that went out about his death was that he— was going through medical distress, was under the influence, and somehow died. And if not, for video evidence from a 16-year-old named Darnella Frazier, who took a video of Officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on him for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, that was the official narrative that the the, the Minneapolis Mm -hmm. police narrative is what went out. And it was people on the ground, not a journalist, but someone who pulled out a phone Mm -hmm. and recorded it, And so it is imperative. It is incumbent. It is part of what we do as a discipline, as journalists, Mm -hmm. is not to just say, so-and-so said X, but to go find out. We all know the adage. Someone says it's raining outside and someone says it's not. Your job as a journalist is not to say someone says it's raining and someone says it's not. Your job is to go out and find out if it's raining. And what I'm seeing very clearly in what's happening in Israel and Gaza is that Journalists are more often willing to go with what the Israeli army says and taking it at their word, including this 40 beheaded babies. And I want to pause here and say, because this is sensitive, right? There's two things. A, it's grotesque that we are at a point where we are saying, okay, but were the dead babies beheaded? It chills my blood. So there's a part of me that's like, what world are we in? Where we are asking But were they beheaded? We're talking about dead children. At the same time, the allegation that these babies were beheaded and the fervor by which that was taken up wholesale by heavyweight journalistic institutions. This is an Mm -hmm. industry-wide problem. The fervor and the lack of verification. There was no evidence of that that was shown, but they reported it. It was on front pages. And that... The beheading of these babies was then used to then exacerbate the level of punishment, the bloodlust that is then leveled towards Palestinians in Gaza. I just think, if I could say, the way that we were horrified by this idea of babies being beheaded, it's dead babies. And in Gaza, half of the population there are children. They weren't even alive in 2006 when Hamas came into power. They did not vote for them, and yet they were wholesale being punished for Hamas's actions. And the same horror that we felt hearing about, you know, the allegation of these beheaded babies, we should be equally horrified by what's happening to the children of Gaza. And I think part of the problem here is the way that this has been reported on, especially in Western media— has been so unnuanced. It's either you support the beheading of babies if we're casting doubt that they happened. There isn't the kind of complexity of this is a grotesque thing to be talking about, but the irresponsible way in which the story was reported facilitated, encouraged, paved the way for further collective punishment of millions of people who have nothing to do with the actions of Hamas. A militant group which governs the Gaza Strip so it's been so I'm heartbroken by what's happening and I also I'm here and I'm measuring every word that I'm saying because I also know this is a topic that is incredibly difficult to talk about because it has been flattened into it seems like there's only room to condemn Hamas's actions Any other kind of public discussion is seen as somehow supporting the actions of killing innocent Israeli civilians. And I think that is doing us such a disservice as an industry and for a public to understand Mm -hmm. how we got here. And most crucially, how do we get out and how do we stop the further bloodshed of innocent civilians on both sides?
1: I want to get from the Committee to Protect Journalists count of journalists killed. As of very early Wednesday morning, they counted at least 17 journalists have been killed. This is by their accounting of cause, broad causes. Of the 17, 10 by Israeli airstrikes, one from a sh- the shelling attack from the direction of Israel, three in the initial October 7th Hamas attack on Israel— and I should also note that these are not all journalists necessarily who were killed in, in the act of reporting. But I mean, there's still a the journalist killed in France. Another was shot dead in near a Palestinian refugee camp. Uh, one was shot while reporting in the conflict in an area to the east of Rafa city. And another was shot and killed at uh, the Gaza Strip's Erez crossing into Israel.
0: And one thing that I can't help but point out is foreign correspondents right now that are reporting on what's happening in Israel and Gaza are in Israel. Israel has bomb shelters. They have a sophisticated uh, system called the Iron Dome to intercept rockets. Mm-hmm. They are I want to be clear, reporting from a war zone is rife with risk. But they are in relative safety in mm-hmm. Israel, these foreign correspondents, compared to journalists in Gaza who have nowhere safe to hide. We've seen them be killed. Again, Issam Abdullah from Reuters has been killed. And um, the people reporting in Gaza right now, are not Western foreign correspondents. They are local residents of Gaza who are trying to keep their families safe, who are reporting on what's happening there while evacuating their own families and fighting for their own safety. And I think there is an asymmetry and perhaps a lack of... There doesn't seem to be the same concern for these journalists who are in Gaza reporting. Their names are Arabic names. Yusuf Hammam, from, who's been reporting for Channel 4, Ibrahim Dahman from CNN. There's a, a BBC reporter named uh, Adnan El burj And I, I just think that um, the ability to bear witness, foreign correspondents right now are not bearing witness to what's happening in Gaza, and it is local Gaza journalists who are doing that. And again, they can't get into Gaza. A, they don't know that they'll be safe. Reuters, again, has not Mm -hmm. gotten confirmation that the IDF will not strike their journalists. They will not guarantee their safety. But there's no access. Israel has blocked um, every entrance to Gaza, both the Egyptian side. Um, And so there's no way to get in and bear witness to what's happening in Gaza through the lens of foreign correspondents who work Mm. for Western media. And I think that is part of—it is doing a disservice to our ability to bear witness as journalists— When we are only seeing it, especially through the lens of powerful Western organizations like CNN and the New York Times and and the CBC, Um, there's a CBC reporter in Israel now, Jeff Semple as well, who are we bearing witness to? Um, And I think the lack of access of being able to bear witness to what's happening in Gaza the same way that we've been able to bear witness to the suffering in Israel is, I think, a fundamental part of the problem of um, what we're seeing today. What questions are we not asking? Well, I mean, there's an elephant in the room as we're speaking. I was referred to do this interview by someone Mm -hmm. who didn't want to do the interview, a Palestinian Mm -hmm. journalist who did not feel comfortable doing this interview. I did an Al Al Jazeera interview last week by yet another Canadian journalist who had been asked and did not feel comfortable speaking about this. And I Mm -hmm. considered not saying yes to this because I think... As an industry, we have really failed at having a conversation on how our coverage of what's Mm -hmm. happening in Israel and Palestine. We're not able to talk about the deeply held frustrations um, without it turning into a punitive, silencing measure. The last time there was a war in Gaza, it was May of 2021, We had just been through the summer of George Floyd. We were in the middle of the pandemic, and uh, Canadian journalists penned this open letter to their newsrooms asking for better coverage. And what they were fundamentally asking for was better context, nuance, the inclusion of Palestinian voices on this topic. And it was getting at the asymmetry Mm -hmm. by which this story is often told, and the lack of context, and specifically the naming of the occupation that has been going on for 75 years. As a core factor in the continued cycle of violence, this group, Honest Reporting Canada, Mm -hmm.
1: which is a advocacy organization slash blog that uh, systematizes media, pressure on media.
0: They have been extremely efficient at any time a Palestinian is on the air talking about their experiences, talking Mm -hmm. about their wish for an end to the occupation, talking about wanting to be free to have freedom of movement, to be able to leave Gaza. Honest reporting will come out and condemn them as anti-Semitic, as calling for the destruction of Israel. And what happens is there becomes a chill.
1: But they don't just condemn them. They actively, The whole, it's an activist organization, they, they mobilize a base with form letters to bombard a media outlet or in the case of, for example, Janella Massa, who's no longer at the CBC, left this past summer and Uh, does freelance consulting but, uh, among other gigs, teaches at TMU, Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly known as Ryerson. And so the form letter in response to her comments on on X the other day, uh, that's directed at TMU, at her employer there, asking them to condemn her and everything.
0: Yes. It is an extremely well-organized system of going after individual people and then also going after their employers and intimidating them, Mm -hmm. essentially. Putting a chill on any kind of conversation that includes the perspective of Palestinian people or those who are talking about the occupation. It is verboten. And you'll remember, of course, a couple of years ago, around the same time Mm. of the open letter, um, there was a memo that was written uh, Mm -hmm. by a CBC editor that said, you cannot say Palestine, right? So there is a real chill in journalism. Mm -hmm. There was an article in the Huffington Post today about even so here is U.S. President Joe Biden going to Israel to have important meetings Mm -hmm. about next steps. And it was a HuffPo article about how his team— specifically Muslim people on his team, feel a chill in being able to raise the humanitarian concerns of Palestinian people and the disproportionate response by Israel and the thousands of innocent people who've been killed in Gaza because they feel afraid that if they speak out, they'll lose their clearances, their security clearances, and will lose a seat at the table. All week we've been seeing people be threatened, their employment is being threatened. Journalists themselves are afraid to bring this this question up. And it is uh, this is something I've experienced myself, um, you know, in 10 years at the CBC. my The one story of mine that did not see the light of day mm-hmm. and that did not make it to air in a decade, 10 years, mm-hmm. was an interview with a Palestinian-American journalist who, ironically, we were talking to about the pressures of covering this um, in the face mm-hmm. of being questioned, questioned, mm-hmm. uh, jostled and interrogated by Israeli police, which she had on video. And that interview did not air.
1: And you talked about that. You wrote about that in that article, the Walrus essay we alluded to earlier, the co- titled Objectivity as a Privilege Afforded to White Journalists and becoming one of not very many journalists to in Canada to have openly openly spoken about this. I mean, the, the Review of Journalism, formerly the Ryerson Review of Journalism, did a feature um, last year, 2022, called the CBC's Palestine Exception, uh, based on interviews with numerous former and current CBC journalists and if you do, not counting like the official statements from the CBC's spokesperson and their ombudsman you were the only current or former CBC or to, na- to have their name to have their name on attached to to go on the record there
0: yeah and the only reason i was comfortable doing that is because i had wrote i had written bulletproof fact checked piece for the Walrus in which the fact checkers at the Walrus called everyone involved in this incident of the Palestinian journalist interview not being aired. And I felt really comfortable with the, again, a discipline of verification, the transparency of having a really strong publication like The Walrus publish this and fact check it. I felt very comfortable standing by that. No one else spoke on the record, but writing about it in The Walrus opened up a way for me to be able to talk about this. But it's something that Myself and so many others are so hesitant to wade into because tensions are so high. It goes sideways so quickly. And I think the key thing that I want to say is the way that we have excluded Palestinian voices from Canadian media makes it very ripe for people to then call any protest in support of Palestinian people or in support of asking for an end to the occupation as Hamas supporters and essentially as terrorists, who are therefore fair targets. We saw in Chicago a six-year-old boy, Palestinian-American boy, murdered, allegedly murdered by his landlord, who came in and stabbed the boy 26 times, motivated by the anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim rhetoric in the news. The flattening of anyone who supports freedom for Palestinian people just the existence of Palestinian people talking about their own lives into, well, then, therefore, you must wholesale be a supporter of Hamas is inaccurate, it is dangerous, and journalists right now in Canada, uh, specifically from the Toronto Star, there's a Toronto Star journalist who has been tweeting about terrifying, vile threats towards Muslim journalists who are reporting on Palestine. It's very dangerous what's happening, and I think... The danger has been in the misrepresentation and wholesale exclusion. Wholesale is a big word. Let me walk that back. The very rare cases in which Palestinian people are brought into Canadian media is always in response to aggression against Israelis. And I really think journalism has such an important role right now in getting at the human suffering. You know, I've been watching interviews with the families of the Israelis who have been killed or held hostage— I am struck by, you know, Noy Katsman, whose brother Chaim was killed by mm-hmm. Hamas.
1: What I wanted to say is the most important for me, and I think also for my brother, was that his death won't be used to kill
0: innocent people. And sadly, my government is using cynically the death of people to just kill. Like, they promised us it was going
1: to bring, it's going to bring us like security but of course it's not security because they always
0: tell us oh that if we're gonna kill enough palestinians or they're gonna so it's gonna be better for us but of course it never brings us peace and it never brings us better lives
1: it just brings more and more terror and more and more uh, people killed like my brother
0: at the end of his interview he says he asked the the person interviewing he says can i say one thing before mm-hmm. you let me go he said i don't want my brother's death to be the reason why more innocent people die. I think there's something very powerful about the people closest to this who have felt this pain the most intimately. They have lost Mm -hmm. their families, are the most um, concerned with an end to the violence by let's just whatever it takes to stop the violence, to stop the killing. That is coming from the people closest to it. And, you know, here there have been motions. The NDP put forward a motion for a ceasefire. It did not pass. And so I think instead of the media right now has a role to be responsible, to highlight the human suffering that has been happening. We know we've seen that the Israeli human suffering, I think, up close. And I think we haven't seen systemically over time Mm. in general the everyday injustices that Palestinian people face that then breed a very violent tinderbox that threatens to boil over all the time. And it does boil over all the time. But the parameter, the bar of um, when we cover it, only seems to be hit when Israelis are, are killed. And so, therefore, it's very skewed. The way that we understand this conflict is always seen through the lens of one side and not through the other. And I think it is... Doing our audiences a disservice, and fundamentally, not just our audiences, our ability as citizens to understand mm-hmm. what's happening and then put pressure on governments to enact policies not of more war, of more airstrikes, of more violence, of funding more weapons, but perhaps let's put this process towards international law.
2: This show is sponsored by Better Help, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and better help is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash Once again, it's betterhelp.com. along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com canadaland Canada Land. That is drinkag1.com drinkag1.com/canadaland.
1: Canada Land. Check it out. On this show, we'd like to duly note things. what would you like to duly note?
0: I would like to duly note the courageous, on-the-ground reporting from Gaza. I have been following the reporting of Adnan El-Bush from BBC from Yusuf Hamem, who's reporting for Channel 4, Ibrahim Dahman from CNN, Ahmad Darousha from Al-Arabi, and Bisan Auda, who's a, a 25-year-old woman in Gaza. She's a filmmaker who has been doing Instagram Lives from the Al-Shifa Hospital compound. And I just think of the courage and the fear um, that these journalists are facing in the course of trying to bring what's happening to Gaza to audiences, and I think it behooves us to pay attention to the journalism that's coming out of Gaza, as much as we are to the journalism that is coming from foreign correspondents who are in Israel, who will leave and go back to their homes, and the people of Gaza who are reporting from there, um, well, they have nowhere else to go. So I think we need to pay attention to their reporting, because it is brave, it is courageous, and they are risking their lives and their families' lives while also trying to tell us what's happening.
1: Julie noted. In November 2021, uh, freelance photojournalist Amber Bracken on assignment for the Narwhal and freelance documentary maker Michael Toledano, working on a project for the CBC, were arrested while covering a protest against the construction of the coastal gas link pipeline in, on Wet'suwet'en territory in BC. There was an injunction against obstructions to the construction, uh, if that's a strange sentence, uh, and both were documenting land defenders who were inside a tiny house that, at least as far as the RCMP was concerned, was constructed for the purpose of obstruction. Both Bracken and Tolodano were inside the house when the RCMP moved in. And here's Amber Bracken explaining what happened on an episode of Canada Land the following month.
0: And as they start surrounding the whole tiny house, there's green military officers hiding behind a small structure that's behind the tiny house. And they take turns dashing out to cut the power and the radio and the Internet. And, yeah, all of that sort of preamble is very tense. It's very, very scary. Honestly, it's and it's it's intense. It feels like being surrounded by an army, and they are coming to get you. They're walking through the door, they're breaking you down. And then the next thing you know, they're coming through the door like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I mean, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying.
1: So, despite protesting that they were journalists, both Amber Bracken and Michael Tolano were taken into custody and released a few days later. TC Energy, the pipeline company, soon chose not to pursue the charges against them for allegedly violating the injunction. And just broadly speaking, recent court decisions have affirmed that journalists in Canada are supposed to be afforded some consideration and deference when just involved in passively chronicling actions that might be illegal, that defy injunction orders, even if the journalist's presence in, in chronicling that could be seen as a violation of strict terms of the order itself, which is to say, if you're following land defenders for the purpose of observing and reporting... That's supposed to be OK. And in practice, the RCMP is wonderful about this. Assisting, no, the, the RCMP has repeatedly kept arresting – you know, keeping, having overbroad exclusion zones, keeping people away and kept arresting people and just sort of letting, you know, letting the courts figure out who's who and what's what. So the narwhal and Amber Bracken decided to take another step and sue the RCMP to try to get them to basically teach them a lesson, to try to get them to fully – try to get them to change their practice. The lawsuit was filed earlier this year. We've talked about it a little bit on the show at the time. But last week, the RCMP filed their uh, response to the Notice of Civil Claim or what in other provinces would be called the Statement of Defense. And then the Narwhal uh, filed their reply to that. And it's interesting because, well, I'll, I'll read you the statement from the Canadian Association of Journalists, which is you know a great organization, but it doesn't always have the most most fiery rhetoric. But here... Uh, if you go down to the very bottom of their press release, so Brent Jolly, that the president of the organization, said, even with the benefit of months of hindsight, it is utterly dismaying to see that Canada's national police force continues this well persecution campaign. Rather than admit its mistake, the RCMP has employed a gaggle of government lawyers to launch an inquisition to demonize a Canadian journalist for simply doing their job. So in their response, the RCMP, as people do when responding to lawsuits, they basically – it's a series of cascading arguments, which – Pretty much every responsible civil suit is like, well, we're not to blame. You're to blame. But if the court decides that we maybe are to blame, well, we're not really – we're not really culpable because we had good reason to do the wrong thing we're doing. And if if you don't agree with that, then here's another reason. If you don't agree with that, then here's another reason. And so the RCMP in their response started with like, well, journalists don't have a right to violate injunction orders and sort of cascaded down to like, well, even if they did, she – Amber Bracken wasn't being a journalist. She was doing all this like, you know, she wasn't in good doing good faith reporting. And to me, it's all foreseeable is the RCMP's response, but it is still it is still dispiriting.
0: I'm struck by the fact that Amber Bracken says she was wearing her. I mean, she had her cameras Mm -hmm. on her. She had her press credentials. I understand the narwhal had written to the RCMP Mm -hmm. to say that she was going to be there they got an okay from a member of the RCMP yeah. they knew that she was going to be there and yet her constitutional right to report on something is is hanging in the balance um and i i can't help but you know think about how crucial it is for journalists to be able to bear witness mm-hmm. and the through line of a body like the RCMP being a force that is uh, criminalizing, preventing, penalizing journalists for uh, bearing witness and helping the Canadian public understand what's happening on a very big topic. And I think all over the world, whether the, it's the RCMP, whether it's the IDF, whether it's police forces in the U.S., mm-hmm. these are forces that are often working against free, fair, journalistic expression. And I think it's really important that the Narwhal is taking this on to protect our constitutional right to report on what's happening within our own borders.
1: Yeah, and as we talked about earlier, like, you know, the RCMP had, as a police force, had initial media lines around this, specifically suggesting that they would be bringing information forward that would would be, you know, derogatory to them, that they would suggest, like, well, these guys are actually at fault, that we didn't do anything wrong. And they didn't end up bringing anything forward, but they were able to certainly create doubt in the narrative, in the immediate aftermath of the arrests. Thing I, one thing I did think was really interesting about their response, and this is what actually the Narwhal identified in the start of their reply, is how, they, how the RCMP seemingly deliberately conflates different meanings of the word to occupy, whether – so to occupy as an act of resistance, an act of protest versus to occupy by virtue of simply being inside of the walls of something like – we are occupying this studio in the sense of we are inside; it's enclosed in its walls. But we are presumably, you know, we're not we're not staying here as any sort of act of protest. So, like some of the passages that they have, so' like just looking through, so the, the word occupy or variations like occupant or occupation up appears forty nine times in, or roughly two and a half times per page in the um, RCMP's response. It only comes up a couple times in the original claim, but there's there are passages like. On November 19, 2021, Ms. Bracken, along with several pipeline opponents, occupied a cabin barricaded from the inside located on a pipeline worksite. The occupation of this cabin was intended to and did interfere with the construction of the pipeline. Ms. Bracken was familiar with the injunction order and knew that the occupation of the cabin breached that order. Or, the occupation of the tiny house on the CGL drill site was a violation of the express terms of the injunction order. Accordingly, on November 19, 2021, all the occupants of the tiny house were arrested for violating the injunction order and detained. And that's some pretty impressive rhetorical sleight of hand there. And it's one of those things that's almost easier to discuss in a podcast than it is even to write about. But out of all the ways I've seen the word occupation be contested, this is not one of them I'd previously considered. I guess what we're talking about in this episode, among many other things, is the not just the, I mean, the criminalization of journalism and the dangers of journalism, but all the various ways that journalism is people try to impose limits on what can be observed and what can be reported on. That's Shortcuts this week. Thanks for joining me, Percent.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. We are on
1: Twitter slash X at CanadaLand. You can email me at jonathan at CanadaLand.com. I read everything you send, and I'm also trying out Blue Sky these days. Where can people find you?
0: I'm on Twitter as just Percent. I'm on Instagram as just Percent. My website is just Percent. Like Beyonce or Rihanna, just one name only. P-A-C-I-N-T-H-E. That's where you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and my website. This
1: episode is produced by Avima Lasard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. And it's our first episode to be recorded in this new studio, just set up by our audio editor uh, and technical supervisor, Tristan Capiccioni, and so thanks to him as well. Our managing editor is Annette Jofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by SoCold. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now, click the link in your show notes, or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.